and we will conclude our series today, the title of which you see on the screen, Get a Life. Today's the last session for that, and for that you need some notes. And we'll be on page 29 in those notes, page 29. Page 29. This afternoon at 5 o'clock is baptism. And we set up this room for the dinner that follows the baptisms. So for that, men, if you could hang around after we're done at noon, it will literally take not more than 15 minutes for us to get the tables or the chairs moved out of the way and the round tables set up in here if several of you guys would be willing to hang around in the room to help us with that. So as soon as we're done here, if you guys would just kind of loiter in here, uh, Tim and, um, and Travis will be in here to give some direction on setting that up. And then also, while this session is going on, there's going to be a clipboard snaking through the uh, auditorium. And that is for sign-ups for tasks that we want to complete at a spring cleaning that we're going to do on April the 16th. April 16th, Saturday, uh, we're going to have a spring cleaning day. The day is all day, 8.30 to 5, but very few people will be here all day, nor are we asking you to be here all day. We've got tasks divided up, and if you put your name on one or two of those, then you can actually come at any time between 8.30 and 5 to do the particular task that's assigned to you. There are only a couple of tasks on the sheet that require you to be here first thing. So if you don't want to be here at 8.30, then don't sign up for those tasks. The rest of them you can come at any time throughout the day. If you want to get it out of the way, then come at 8.30 and then you can knock it out and then uh, then leave. So hopefully that will make its way through here and everybody will get a chance to see it and put your name on the uh, sign up. So Glenn has it here, right? Glenn, you've got the sign up there? All right. And it'll make its, Lord willing, it'll make its way all the way over to all the way over to here. And we're not doing four separate clipboards with four sections because the folks that are heading this up don't want to do it that way. So I defer to them. Uh, so we do sometimes, as you know, four separate clipboards. That way we don't have to worry about them getting from here to there. Uh, but they want to do it this way. We'll see how it works. All right, today, page 29, in your Get a Life notes. And... Page 29 is part of a section that started on page 24, which is at the top of page 24. It's titled, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Servants. And I explained to you at that time that I stole that title from the best-selling book many years ago of Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the subtitle on page 24 at the top, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Servants, colon, Personal Management for Personal Ministry. And the idea here is to help you in your personal life get some ideas as to how you can control what you can in order to do all you can in the Lord's work. Control all you can in your personal life so that you can do all you can in the Lord's work. Because it's my experience that the extent to which people don't have it together in their personal life, they're not controlling what they can, means that they can't then get involved like they would like in the work of the Lord. So this is designed in part to help you do that, to control what you can in your personal life so that you can do 
all that you can in the Lord's work. And therefore, that subtitle, personal management for personal ministry, getting it together in our own lives so that we have margin to be involved in in personal ministry. Now, you might ask the question, understandably, why should I take a few weeks as a pastor at church to go through people getting their act together? Shouldn't I just assume we, we all have our act together? And if we don't have our act together, frankly, it's none of your business. You know, and we'll get involved in what we can. Just tell us what you need, what needs to be done, how we need to serve, how we need to use our gifts. So is this really something that a church should, should care about? Well, I would just suggest to you that this idea is inherent in discipleship. Because in discipleship, it, discipleship is not just the transfer of information, but it is also the modeling of life to the disciple. So the idea of how we order our lives is inherent in the idea of discipleship. Further, it's explicit in passages like Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, older men are told to, in effect, mentor younger men, and older women, uh, younger women. The older women are told to teach the younger women to do things like be keepers at home. I mean, that's a loaded phrase. You know, all the stuff that's involved in something like that. Older women teach younger women to do that. And that's in your Bible in in Titus chapter 2. So it's the idea is found in your Bible. It's inherent in the idea of the modeling that goes with discipleship. And then on a practical level, you simply will not be able to do what you otherwise would like to do in the Lord's work if you don't have these matters together. And you know that. Many of you are experiencing that now. You're thinking to yourself, I wish I had it together more so that I could do more in the Lord's work. And so I'm encouraging you to take what we've said over these weeks and and implement it in your life to help you with that. And also as a practical matter, in our day, many people don't have folks to show them how to organize their, their private lives, their personal lives. We, be, we live in a day when families are fragmented. So that you don't have, for many people, they don't have role models in dad and mom. If they had Christian dads and moms at all, or they're living in other parts of the country, maybe we didn't have a Christian uh, set of parents to show us these kinds of priorities and, and how to do things. Uh, for myself, I grew up in a Christian home, but my dad died when I was 11. So there were a bunch of things that I just did not learn how to do as a as a boy and as a teenager. Uh, so my family bears the brunt of that, that I don't know how to do stuff. And whenever they see me pull one of the like three tools I own, when they see me with one of those, they all get panicked. <laughs> Look out, Dad's got a tool. I could regale you with stories of my prowess on having literally water spray all over our kitchen as I tried to my hand at plumbing. How hard can it be? <laughs> but I never learned. I never learned to do that stuff. My dear mother who raised us as a southern mother was taught to raise her kids, which means this, wait on them hand and foot. 
And she did. She had four boys, and she did way too much for us. But that's the model that I had. Mom does this stuff. And I got married, and I I told Kim, hey, that's the way this works, isn't it? (laughs) So I, I had to learn. But I didn't, I didn't come ready-made with that, not, not even close, because I didn't have a set of parents, wonderful parents, but my dad wasn't around but till I was 11, and then my mom had those kinds of values that she brought into it that were skewed, frankly, well-intended, but really harmful in the long haul to, to us. And you have people who don't have Christian parents. They don't have parents who take the time to show them, to show them anything. So that being the case, you have people who come into the church and they want to serve Jesus and they hear that they're supposed to use their gifts and abilities and all of that, but they don't really know how to pull all that together. So for all those reasons, I'm justifying taking a few weeks to try to help with that. Now, we left off uh, having looked at two of the seven habits. We're going to look at the final five today, and we started the third one. The first one was per- be purpose-driven. That's the habit number one, be purpose-driven. The second habit is keep your eye on the prize. And now on page 29, we're in the middle of the third habit, prioritizing the important. Prioritizing the important. And we left off at the top of page 29 with the idea that if we're going to prioritize what's important, it means we have to defeat what Charles Hummel in his little booklet by this name called the tyranny of the urgent. Important is defined as, top of page 29, of much import, carrying with it serious consequences, weighty, momentous, grave, significant. Urgent is pressing, compelling, calling for, or demanding immediate action. Anything characterized by urgency. So here's a a matrix then that that flows out of that. You see, you've got uh, horizontally at the top, urgent and not urgent, and then vertically on the side, not important and, and important. And you get these four quadrants out of that. If something is in the top left box that is important and urgent, if it is both urgent and important, then you have to deal with that of necessity. But then at the top right, it may be important, but it's not urgent. But these are the kinds of things that you need to engage in if you're going to have productivity and balance in life. If you're down at the bottom and you're in the not important boxes, something's not important but it appears to be urgent, you can easily deceive yourself that this stuff is actually important. That's why it says deception there. And then if you spend a lot of your time in not important and not urgent, that's waste and excess. So the urgent, friends, may not be important. What is beckoning for you in the, in the moment may not be important actually at all. And we know this, don't we? We know this from the sales guy on TV and the infomercial at 2 in the morning. And by the way, if we're watching the infomercial at 2 in the morning, look at box 4. <laughs> but that aside, that guy's trying to convince you, isn't he? It's urgent. You've got to have this gadget right now. And only the first 100 people to call, you know, of the millions that are watching me at 2 in the morning, only the first 
hundred people are going to get this deal. Now, let's all be honest. You know, many of us have, we have pulled out the credit card. We made the call. That guy convinced me. That thing is urgent. And then you got the thing in the mail. It came to you, and it doesn't do any of the stuff that he said it was going to do. So people try to convince you and pull you into things that are urgent, but what is claimed to be urgent may well not be important. But hear this, what's really important may not be urgent. That is, it's really important, but I don't have to do it today. It'll be there tomorrow. It'll be there next week. And because it's not urgent, but it's important, it's easy to put it off. And important things, as a result, don't get done because we're giving ourselves to things that appear to be urgent, but they're really not, and they're not important. So if you take a look at page 30, you have examples. So at the top, the two boxes at the top are things that are important, but that falls into these two categories. They're urgent or they're not urgent. Important and urgent things are things like crises. If you get a phone call and and your child is hurt, then that's important and it's urgent, right? Pressing problems that have to be dealt with. Projects that have been assigned to you that have a deadline. They're important and they're urgent. Meetings that you have to to attend and, and, and so on. So those are the kinds of things there. But then you've got important things that are not urgent. Preparing for some task that doesn't, isn't going to take place until a week from now or a month from now. Preventing. Thinking about how to prevent something that will happen if action is not taking, something negative that will happen. Planning, relationship building, recreation. Notice the hyphen there, recreation. We have some more notes. Does anybody, we got some more printed here. Does anybody need a set of notes? Got some here, John, up front and one over here. So if any of you guys need notes, just uh, get John's attention at some point, okay? We're on page 30, page 30. Recreation, you know, kind of rejuvenating, renewal for yourself. That's important, but it's not urgent, and therefore it may fall by the wayside. Clarifying your values. Filling out a personal mission statement. That's not on here. Creating a personal mission statement. We gave you an example of one at the beginning of these notes. That's not urgent. We didn't give a deadline on that. Nobody's going to check your homework. But whether or not you actually took the course will show up later. As to whether or not you've really thought about that and implemented that. It's important. It's very important. But it's not urgent. So if you haven't done it, I encourage you to do it. What about the New Year's resolutions you made? Middle of March. How's that going? So these are things that may well have been important, but they weren't urgent, and therefore they they haven't gotten done. Now, then below the line, you see things that are not important on the left side, but are deemed to be urgent, either deemed to be urgent by you or by other people who are telling you they're urgent. Needless interruptions, unnecessary reports, unimportant meetings, phone calls, mail, email, other people's minor issues. Now, 
I know how this goes. And here's, let me tell you how I know how this goes. One way I know how it goes is often people will say to me, they will say, hey, I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you, they'll say. And if you've ever said that to me, you know what my response is. Now, if they say, I need to talk to you right now, I've got a crisis, well, then we talk right now, okay? So that's the side, but I need to talk to you. Let's get together. We need to get together this week. Here's my response. Shoot me an email. Half of this room has heard me say that. Shoot me an email with some times that are good for you, and we'll get together. Here's my card. It's got my email on it. Now, guess how many times people shoot me an email? Think about that. Now, if if I were to say, okay, let's meet tomorrow at 5, then we'll be getting together for something that apparently is not all that important. Because they're not even going to contact me about it. So, I have to, you have to, I have to, we all have to differentiate between things that are are not important and what someone is saying is urgent. If it's really urgent, the person will contact me, right? If it's really important, and if it's really important to them, they'll contact me. And so that's why I say that. Shoot me a note, and then we'll get together. Now, the other half of the time, people do that. And then we set it up, and then we get together, and then we, and then we go from there. But a lot of times what is presented as urgent, is my point, is not urgent. And you need to make a wise decision about those in the, in the use of your time. And then you see over in the far right box at the bottom, that's the category of things that are not, both not important and not urgent, trivia, irrelevant phone calls, mail and email, time wasters, escape activities, excessive TV, internet, relaxation, and there's a bunch of, bunch of guilty feeling people in here right now. Now, which of those four boxes is the most important box? It's the one at the top right. It's things that are actually important, but they're not urgent. Because those are the hardest for you to focus on. They're important, but there's nothing pressing me to do them now. So if you're going to make a transformation in the way you manage your your life, focus on box number two. Things that are important, things that are longer range, but nobody is hounding you to get them done right now. Now, the, the crises and all of that, those have their own importance. Nobody has to be convinced of that. But if you turn to page 31, that's why you see at the top there it says live above the line. Living above the line. The line is the line between what's important and what's not important. So endeavor not to hang out below the line. Minimize the not important but urgent things as best you can. And avoid completely the things that are both non-urgent and not important. With crises and all those kinds of things, manage those, but, but focus on number two there. You see Roman numeral two, upper right. Focus on the things that are not urgent but are actually, in fact, important. 
So prioritizing the important is habit number three. Now, as you sit here right now, I just encourage you, before we go to the next habit, commit to yourself and to the Lord, I'm going to invest time in thinking about this. Because if you don't, nobody's holding a gun to your head to do it. It's not urgent, but it's really important. All right, habit number four. Look out for number one. Now, when we say look out for number one, well, who do we normally mean? I'm look, number one is, of course, moi, right? Me. But as you'll see, that's not what we mean. Other people should actually be number one. And that's a habit of a highly effective servant. If we follow the three principles that are already been covered, be purpose-driven, keep your eye on the prize, and prioritize the importance, then we will have more discretionary time. Now, doesn't, doesn't that follow? If you do those three things, now you're going to have some discretionary time to do really important stuff. If you don't, you won't. You won't have that time. If we do the first three of these seven, we'll have created margin in our lives. And you see the footnote there. Margin is a word from a set of books written by a guy named Richard Swenson. And I gave you a bibliography at the beginning of these notes, and some of his books are are listed there. But we will have created margin in our lives that can now be used in more productive ways. That is, in ways that help us achieve our purpose of glorifying God in the biblical mission by maturing obedience to his word in every role of life. And a close look at the various roles that God has given reveals that they all involve us in relationships. Both with God and with others. Now, the the roles that God has given, footnote 8, those are listed on the personal mission statement sample template that I gave you at the beginning of the notes. They're in your note. That's in your notes. And if you look at those roles, they involve us in relationships, either with God and or with others. Now, that shouldn't come as a surprise. Jesus said the greatest commandments are love God and love others. So therein lies the reason for creating margin. To better love God and others. Because I want to have time to invest in other people. But in order for me to have time to invest in other people, I need to order my life for that purpose. The first three habits then, being purpose-driven, keeping your eye on the prize, prioritizing, are foundational for the last four. The first three help us in personal management, which allow time for the last four which are personal ministry. So remember the subtitle of this section, starting on page 24, the seven habits of highly effective servants, colon, personal management for personal ministry. The personal management piece is the first three habits. If you do those now, you will be able to effectively engage in in personal ministry, which should be the goal for us. So looking out for number one, if this is all, all of those roles are involved, involve relationships, then means I need to understand who number one is. Top of page 32, sorry to disappoint you, it's not you. You're not number one. While it's common due to our sin nature for each of us to be self-centered, we live in an especially narcissistic culture. The Bible teaches two important truths that are the answer, the antidote to our selfishness. One is to understand that life is intended to be God-centered. 
The Westminster Catechism's first question and answer are known to many of us. What is the chief purpose of man? The answer, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. While this is certainly God-centered, John Piper has made a small but significant change to that answer. He says it would be better to answer that the chief purpose of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And he adds that word by. Rather than and. As if they're two separate things, glorifying God and enjoying. He's saying that the one follows, uh, that they're related. They're not separated. They're not two separate things. So enjoying God is not something we do in addition to glorifying Him. Rather, enjoying God is the means by which we glorify Him. Those who delight in God, delight in God in all of their circumstances. just, Just think about that. The chief end of my life, if the chief end of my life, of your life, was to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Like right now, if that was really what was going on in your life. That I could delight in God in every circumstance. And I say here, those who delight in God do that in all circumstances. If our joy is tied to circumstances, it's going to be up and down, uneven. But if it's tied to our relationship with God, it will be constant no matter the circumstances. And and here's one of the chief things that keeps us from investing our lives in other people. Is that we are so messed up in our circumstances. We hate our circumstances. We hate our lives. It hasn't gone according to plan. Man, I wouldn't want to take testimonies on that right now. But we are so loathing where we are in our circumstances that 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 is debilitating us personally. How then am I going to help other people? I'm virtually incapacitated myself because I don't like the way my life is. But if I if it were really possible to enjoy God in all circumstances, then then now I'm free to invest myself in what really matters. Now, is it really possible? Well, the Bible says it is. You know, now what's the Bible know about it? What do those people in the Bible know about it? They all had it pretty easy, right? I mean, you take this Paul fellow. What's he know about what I got going on? And I don't know everybody's circumstances here, but I can say this without any hesitation. If the great apostle were here and you listed everything that's going on in your life, he can he can say, I can top that. All the difficulty going on in your life does not hold a candle to the stuff that this guy went through. He catalogs it for us, doesn't he? Shipwrecked, beaten. He's ultimately executed. And while he's in jail, under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, one of the many times that his circumstances are lousy, his circumstances are lousy for the sake of Jesus, he writes a letter. He writes a letter to some other people. And guess what he's concerned about? He's concerned about those other people. 
the letter of Philippians is written to them for their joy. I want you all to be able to have joy in Christ. You know, how can I go encourage people to have joy when I'm a wreck? When I'm hating life? And here's Paul chained to a Roman guard. And not only is he not hating life, he's writing to other people for their benefit. He's ministering to other people because he's enjoying God in all circumstances. And that's why he can say in the last chapter of that letter, where 16 times he uses the word joy or related terms. In the last chapter, in the fourth chapter, he says those famous words. We have them listed for you there. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. And when he says it, he's chained to this Roman guard. So life is intended to be God-centered. And it can be God-centered in the sense that, and and to the degree that, we enjoy God in our circumstances. Many a marriage would not break up that otherwise disintegrates if people understood this. That I can still enjoy God in the midst of difficult relationships. That I can still enjoy and glorify God in the midst of difficult circumstances. Life is intended to be God-centered. You know, after I get done with Genesis... We're starting Genesis two weeks from, we're getting back to Genesis two weeks from today. Easter next week. But after that, I think Job is next. For these reasons. All right, anyway. Life is intended to be God-centered. And secondly, on page 32, life is to be lived for the benefit of others. If we see ourselves as the undeserving recipients of God's grace, then we will not be preoccupied with perceived violations of our rights and therefore be free and willing to invest ourselves in others. Think about the person who is prickly. Am I getting my share? Am I being treated right? And then the person who's free from all that. And they know that whatever they've gotten is better than they deserved. And, And Paul was like that. He understood who he was before God. He's the recipient of God, the thankful recipient of God's grace. But he understood who he was as a sinner. Notice at the bottom, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm less than the least of all God's people. I'm the worst of sinners. It's because he had that kind of an attitude he could say what I have at the very bottom of page 32. But we did not use the right of material support in the ministry. He says he could have, but he chose not to. I've not used any of these rights, the sport, taking a wife along on his, on his journeys. Why did he do that? Why was he able to forego that? Because, top of page 33, First Corinthians 9 there, he says, I have the last line, I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Here's why. He's looking out for number one, and number one's not him. It's other people. And so he can say that we are to live our lives for the good of others. 1 Corinthians 10, the next chapter after that, where he says, I didn't use these rights. Everything is permissible, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, 
Notice it's in quotes. That's what they say. But not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So habit number four in ministry is other people are more important. And if you're preoccupied constantly with what's going on in your life and your relationships and your circumstances and how you don't like them, then, friend, be sure you're not going to be able to minister to other people. And you're certainly not going to be able to minister to other people as effectively and as much as you otherwise could. So look out for number one, that is other people. Habit number five, be quick to listen. If ministry is relationships and I'm involved in to be engaged in interacting with others for their benefit, then that means I got to find out what's going on with them. I got to listen to them. So tell me about yourself. I say there. And that's something I'll say to people. You know, you'll hear that, right? So tell me about yourself. And guess what? People talk. If you say, tell me about yourself, a person can talk. Because we like talking about ourselves. We all like, I say here, to talk about ourselves more than others. Again, owing to our self-centeredness. However, we have a calling to speak to one another For each other. This means we must practice speaking the truth in love, using our speech to build up one another. But in order for me to know how to engage in personal ministry for another person, I've got to listen. I've got to know what's going on with them for the purpose of being able to help them. In addition, we must see it as our role to be actively engaged in that kind of personal ministry. So here's what we're saying. When... when Stuff like you're having a bagel and coffee. If you're really tuned in to personal ministry for other people, you won't always just go to the same people to talk about the same stuff that you two are interested in. Not always. No. That's a good thing to do. It's a helpful thing to do. It's an encouraging thing to do. You've got friends. You've got common interests. All of that. But, But you won't always do that. You'll be looking out for somebody you don't normally talk to. And then when you talk to them, you'll ask them about them. As a means to find out if there's ministry to be had between you and that person. But that means you have to actively see it as your role to actively engage in this. Now, I'm not trying to to, uh, put anyone on the spot because I wasn't in the auditorium to see who was in the auditorium not talking to anybody. But let me just say to you, friends, that we have a refreshment time, yeah, for you to get coffee and juice and a bagel. But we really have that time for you to engage with other people. And if you say, you know, man, I am just painfully shy. I don't know what to say. Here's what you say. Tell me about yourself. You won't have to say anything else. I'm exaggerating, but tell me about you. You know, so how did you come? How did you come by CBC? How did you hear about CBC? Just ask them about them. You live around here? You lived around here your whole life? What do you do? You have a family around here? I'm okay. You're done with Cafe Community by the time you get... Get through just stuff like that, asking them about them, being quick to listen. Now, the only way you'll do any of that 
is if other people are more important and the bulleted points at the bottom of page 33 are true, that you have a proper view of the church, of the gospel, of scripture, and a right goal for daily living. I don't have time to go through those, but there they are. All right, habit number six, page 34. Play your role. So if I'm going to be an effective servant of the Lord, you're going to be an effective servant of the Lord, then we've all got a role to play or roles to play. It's in the context of relationship where we are life on life and we're going out of our way to get to know each other, not just during Bay. I just use that as an example. Community groups that meet in homes, by the way. That's the main reason we have those is so that you're in a living room with 12 to 15 other people and you're doing that on a semi-weekly basis to pray with them and get to know them and they to get to know you. All right, this is all happening in the context of relationships and then I have been gifted and you've been gifted and prepared by God to play a role in his work. That's what habit number six is. The main act. The modern day evangelical church is all too often characterized by professionalism and passivity. Professionalism on the part of those in, quote, full-time ministry, passivity on the part of the laity. Yet the Bible is clear that ministry is the responsibility of every believer, with each playing his part. The Scriptures teach the following principles that are foundational to every person, all the time, kind of ministry. We've got three of them there and the verses that, that support them. But would you agree with this illustration that I read some years ago, that the modern-day church is similar to a football game where... You've got 50,000 people in the stands and 11 people on the field. And very often the church and the work of the church is 50,000 people who desperately need exercise watching 11 people who desperately need rest. And they're saying in the church, that's too often the case. You've heard that you've heard the old... Eight, 20% of the people in church do 80% of the work. Have you heard that? Now, thankfully, that's not the case in our church. It's never been the case in our church. And part of the reason it hasn't been is because I do stuff like this. To make sure we know that God has gifted each of us to play a role or roles in his church. Now, what are those principles? All members are ministers. The word ministry, the Greek word translated ministry in the Bible, is the word for service. The word minister is servant. So we're all servants. We're all ministers. My mom is from the South. And I told you that earlier. And they used to use the term minister for the pastor. He's the minister. And when I became a pastor... My mom used to love, just love, her favorite thing in the world was to introduce me to someone and say, he's a minister. She loved that. And bless her, bless her heart, I know what she meant. But in her mind, there are ministers and then there are ministers. And my son's a minister, okay? But in the Bible, there are ministers, it's us. And we all just have different roles to play. I've got mine, you've got yours. So all members are ministers. 
But part of the reason that we don't uh, have 100% of people actively engaged is due to a lack of supply or a lack of demand. Now, lack of supply is just people, there's not enough people who are willing to do it. Or sometimes there's a lack of demand. And the lack of demand part is churches can be structured in such a way that the only kinds of things people can actually get involved in involve giftedness they don't have. Many of our churches are structured so that if you really want to get involved, the only ways you can get involved are in teaching kind of public kinds of things. Now, it's not the only, but, but mostly. So the average person gets the idea, we pay people to do that stuff. But did you know truly the work of the ministry involves 80% of stuff that's not public, not speaking? So if you're somebody like the majority of people, they say the, the last thing I would ever want to do is get up and talk in front of people. It's okay. we got lots of stuff for you to do where you don't have to talk to anybody. It's behind the scenes kinds of stuff. Most, listen, most of the work of the ministry gets done behind the scenes. And we wouldn't be able to do the public ministry if we didn't have that. I thank God every week, every day of every week, there are people in this building ministering in ways that make public ministry possible. So sometimes there's a lack of supply, sometimes a lack of demand. There really shouldn't be either. And number two, each member minister is uniquely designed by God. So each of us has giftedness, abilities, but I would also add to that experiences, sometimes even hard and difficult experience. We read several passages in our first hour today from Ephesians chapter 2, that famous passage in verses 8 and 9. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And we usually stop quoting there. The next verse, verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. Greek word is poema. God's poems, some translations, God's masterpiece, work of art, craftsmanship. God has made you what you are. And that making you what you are is not just what you were born with, not just your natural abilities. It's the experiences and the stuff you've gone through that have molded you. Even difficult things, even hard things. That's why when somebody comes to me and they're going through some difficult thing, I can say to them, look, I don't know all the specific reasons that God in his sovereignty has you going through this. I do know at least one reason. And it comes from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we may be able to comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God's going to bring you through this thing, I tell them. And when he brings you through this thing, you're going to help other people to come through this thing. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. So God has uniquely designed all of us. That includes our experiences. I was teaching some of this just yesterday in Ann Arbor to a church there whose pastor is going to be leaving, he tells me, next year to plant a church in Mumbai, India. He's from India. He's going to Mumbai. 
And uh, he said to me, when I go to Mumbai, I'm going to plant a church like Community Bible Church. We're going to have an affiliate in Mumbai. How cool is that? We got, we got one in Jacksonville. Now we're going to have one in Mumbai. That'll be a great thing. And then the task of pastoral ministry is equipping ministers to, to minister. And then the last habit, and then we're done because it is noon, is that this is a lifelong thing. So improve your serve. You're a servant, improve your serve. It's a marathon, not a sprint. We're called to a lifetime of service. In order to maintain our ability to serve God and others in a vibrant way over the long haul, we have to pace ourselves for the race. After all, we can only give what we have, and therefore it's necessary to refill the tank, charge the batteries, sharpen the saw, and so on. If we do so, it will allow us to help others from the overflow of a full life. And then here are some suggestions for you. All right. We guys, I'm asking you to stick around uh, after we pray, and you'll get some instruction on how to set these uh, chairs up around some tables that we're going to put up for tonight's baptism. Baptism tonight at 5 o'clock. Let's ask the Lord to go with us, all right? Father, thank you for the privilege of allowing us to serve you. Lord, you could get your work done directly without the uh, mediation of people, without doing it through us. And so you using us is not a matter of necessity for you. It's a matter of privilege for us. And so, Lord, help me to see it that way and help us to see it that way. It's not that I have to serve God. It's not that I have to go to church. It's not that I have to talk to these people. It's not that I have to instill these habits in my life. It's that I get to do these things. I have the opportunity to do that. I have the honor, the privilege of doing these things. To be your servant, to be your ambassador, and to carry out your work. Help us to have that mindset, Lord. And then as a result... Grant us then the motivation to eagerly instill these habits into our lives so that this place, this church, will be a vibrant ministering community, one to another and to those around us, to bring you glory. Go with us, we ask you this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.